Welcome to this podcast called Curious About Recovery. I am Kirsten Honeyball. I am your host. And in this podcast, I will be diving deep into eating disorders, which are complex and challenging to navigate. So whether you're a sufferer, a professional, a family or loved one of a sufferer, you can join me as I get curious by interviewing professionals, chatting to eating disorder survivors and sharing my personal experience with an eating disorder so that you can better understand various perspectives remove stigma, hear inspiring testimonies, and simply get curious about all things eating disorder related. I would like to put out a trigger warning. These episodes explore the topic of eating disorders and some content may be triggering to listeners. Topics explored may mention, but are not limited to, trauma, diets, food and body types, suicide, mental illness, substance use, self-harm, violence, gender identification topics, and more. Please take care before listening to any episodes. It's important to note that this podcast is not aimed to diagnose, treat or cure any form of mental illness and should not be seen as a replacement for treatment of eating disorders. Everything said here is expressed in relation to personal and professional opinions and listeners should be encouraged to view these episodes as an open-minded exploration of various possibilities and perspective rather than hard facts and solutions. Please take what applies or resonates with you and leave the rest. And if you're struggling with an eating disorder, don't hesitate to reach out to me at Kirsten at kirstenhoneyball.co.za. Today, I have Rachel Lewis-Marlow and Annie Goldsmith with me to talk about something that I'm incredibly passionate about in recovery. It's the concept of embodiment and how it relates to eating disorders. So Rachel is the co-founder of the Embodied Recovery Institute, which facilitates trainings, consultation and program development for physical and mental health professionals in something called Embodied Recovery for Eating Disorders uh, or ERED. ERED is a trauma-informed relationally oriented and neurobiologically supported approach to the treatment of eating disorders. It weaves modalities and interventions based on the latest research in traumatology, interpersonal neurobiology and child development, which is incredibly interesting. ERED draws on the principles of the polyvagal theory, interpersonal neurobiology, sensory motor psychotherapy, sensory integration and body-mind centering. Rachel is a somatically integrative psychotherapist Dually licensed in counseling and therapeutic massage and body work. She is a certified advanced practitioner in sensory motor psychotherapy and has advanced training and over 25 years of experience in diverse somatic therapies, which include craniosacral therapy, energetic osteopathy, oncology massage, and aromatherapy. Wow. <laughs> Rachel began her work with eating disorders in residential PHP and IOP treatment programs. It was there that she developed the re Embodying Recovery Group Therapy Protocol, which forms the basis of Embodied Recovery for Eating Disorders. She has extensive experience as a teacher and presenter, focusing on accessing the body's unique capacity to give voice to the subconscious and to lay the foundation for healing and maintaining psychological and physical health. In her private practice in Chapel Hill, Rachel specializes in working with people exploring recovery from trauma, eating disorders and disassociative disorders. 
Annie is also here to join us and it's awesome to have two people that I'm interviewing today because I don't often do that. So super cool to get two perspectives. Um, Annie holds a degree, an undergraduate degree from the University of Rochester in, in Brain and Cognitive Sciences and attended Winthrop University for her graduate coursework in Human Nutrition. Her educational and professional trajectory has always been guided by strong curiosity, love that word, about the ways our biology and psychology interact to inform our human experience. Annie has worked in neuroscience research labs at New York University and Davidson College before pursuing a career in nutrition. She has experience treating eating disorders at the PHP, IOP and outpatient levels of care. She opened her outpatient group practice called Second Breakfast Nutrition, which she will tell us a little bit more about later, in 2015. Annie's practice is rooted in a foundational belief in the inherent worthiness of all bodies. She centers weight-inclusive, social justice-oriented and trauma-informed frameworks in her approach to eating disorder care and recovery. She is passionate about working with clients from a bottom-up approach, centering and supporting the wisdom of the body and the innate capacity for healing. What an amazing duo to have on the show today. I'm super, super excited. I would just absolutely love to know a little bit about how you got into doing embodiment as a recovery modality and, you know, the, the, the model that you guys use in your institute and what it's all about and a bit of your personal history, if you don't mind me sharing. That sounds great. Okay. Um, I, I'll start with the Embodied Recovery Model Institute and then kind of maybe backtrack a little bit how I got there, I think. The, the Institute itself was a collaborative effort between myself and Paula Scataloni. And we met um, when we were both working at higher levels of care. And independently, we had been working in the field of eating disorders, knowing that something was missing. And um, we brought together these different um, somatic approaches to working with mental health that we had been exploring and developing and, and learning about, wove those together. There was a big kind of like there was a, how do I say, a, a Venn diagram of, of what we were doing. I can speak a little bit to sort of the piece that I brought, and then I can speak a little bit to the piece that, that Paula brought and where that, that ended up. My background has been a sort of a lifelong weaving of very somatic body body oriented practices everything from you know taking dance class as a young child i was always a mover and a kinetic learner and a kinetic and tactile expresser so i've seen the world through that lens primarily it's my native language but i also have been very interested in emotions and, and cognitions and psychology. And I've been weaving those two paths together. Some, well, sometimes I've been jumping from one to the other, and sometimes I've been weaving them. Um, so my undergraduate work started out in psychology and ended up with a major in dance. And then after I graduated, I studied therapeutic massage and body work and danced. And I was immersed in that world for a very long time, looking at both expression, embodiment, and facilitating change through those somatic lenses. I recognized that there was a limit to how far I could, or how, how thoroughly 
I could facilitate change if I didn't also include how the bot, what we now know, we now call bottom up process, if it didn't weave all the way through to the emotions and the belief systems and the cognitions. So then I went back to graduate school and I got my degree in counseling. And that kind of took me from one hemisphere of my brain <laughs> to the other hemisphere of my brain, um, which was a little bit of a painful transition. <laughs> After school, I studied with Pat Ogden's faculty in the sensory motor psychotherapy. And what I loved about that work is that it really helped me language the bridge between these two places that I have, have inhabited and I've been um, trying to live. And rather than bouncing back and forth, I'm now able to sort of live on the bridge and reach both sides. So it was through that work that I was um, contacted to by a, an eating disorder treatment team that really wanted to start looking at somatic practices for working with trauma and eating disorders. And that's how I got to the higher level of care. Paula had been working in the field of eating disorders. She kind of came the other direction. Paula had been working in the field of eating disorders for a long time. She had um, discovered somatic experiencing, which somatic experiencing and sensory motor psychotherapy both originate from sort of the same place, you know, different branches. And so there's a lot of overlap there, but there's just some important differences. So Paula was bringing this somatic experiencing lens and kind of thinking, well, how do I apply somatic experiencing to the eating disorder treatment? So we both kind of came together and the piece that sensory motor, I think, really brings that's, that's qualitatively different to where somatic experiencing was at the time that Paula had been studying it is that there's much more in-depth understanding of the um, attachment system. That's, that's what we brought together. And then we, you know, we just brought our, our skills and curiosity together to, to build the Institute. And, and this approach to working with eating disorders that was trying to, to articulate and address what's been missing. It's not to say that what's there isn't good, it's just incomplete. And so we're trying to find a way to address what's been missing. And a lot of what was missing was putting the body in sort of the forefront of the recovery process and saying your body is, is the ally and is the source of wisdom. And when we can really work bottom up, we're addressing that piece that helps for sustained recovery, not episodic recovery. And with that came, we came up with sort of these four principles that are part of the embodied recovery for eating disorder approach. We played around, is it a model? It's not really a model, is it a, it's not a technique. It's really a kind of a paradigm shift. And so the first one is that traditionally eating disorders are viewed as a biopsychosocial disorder. Like there's this recognition that there's, there's this perfect storm that has to happen in order for someone to really have a, an eating disorder. But the body part, the bio part has been sort of limited to curiosity about a genetic predisposition 
interventions that address the body have been kind of limited to refeeding, psychopharmacology. And in more recent years, there's been an understanding that things like yoga have an ability to help with some of the dysregulation that people with eating disorders tend to feel. But we were really saying, you know, there's a lot more available for us to look at when we start to understand the, the bottom-up somatic scaffold for regulation that is, in, is neurologically linked to our somatic scaffold for attachment. And that's where Steve Porges' work is lovely because it helps to articulate purely on a neurological basis how our nervous system, the nervous system that regulates digestion, is the same nervous system that is involved in identifying safety and being able to establish relationship. So we bring in this understanding that we've got to look at a lot more of what's going on in the somatic scaffold, including early, early development, like where does the nervous system start? Where does regulation start? Where does attachment start? It starts, it starts at the moment of conception. It starts generationally. So we're looking at the, the development and the organization all the way from conception, you know, through life and particularly taking into account what was the experience of the earliest foundations of our attachment system, because without secure attachment, our digestive system doesn't work and there's not bottom-up support. So that's the first thing is that we're really expanding the role the body plays in the foundation for what we might call normative eating and, and regulation. And because we're, we're emphasizing the body's role, we're looking, we then go to our second principle, which is that to, we're kind of redefining what recovery is rather than it being seen as this elimination of eating disorder behaviors or quieting of the eating disorder voice. What we're looking at is defining recovery as a process of greater embodiment. That the more embodied we are, the more bottom-up support there is for a relationship with food that supports our ability to survive and thrive. And with that, we are looking at, you know, we have a sort of this working definition of what embodiment is and what is needed to increase embodiment. But we're also looking at what specifically do we need to embody? <laughs> and, and we're looking at three different aspects of the human condition. One is the attachment system, that way in which we connect with things. We're looking at the defense system, which is how do we disconnect from things? And then we're looking at the sensory processing system, which is how we literally make sense of the world. How do we perceive it? How do we receive it? How do we respond to it? It's a sensory motor process. And it involves both how we take in information about the world outside and the world inside. So it's very comprehensive. And that brings us to the, our third principle, which is that 
eating disorder behaviors are traditionally seen as sort of coping strategies. How do you cope with emotions or how do you cope with dysregulation? dysregulation? And I have this little pet peeve that people who've studied with me, I get very specific about language sometimes, that I don't see behaviors as a coping strategy or a or, or a result of how we think about our bodies or we, how we think about ourselves. What I see eating disorder behaviors are the body speaking in its native language about our attachment system, our defense system, and our sensory processing system. And so what that means is rather than trying to challenge the eating disorder voice or quiet it or eliminate eating disorder behaviors, we first have to listen to them and listen to them by understanding the languages of the body. How does the body speak? So the body doesn't speak in thoughts. We apply thoughts to make meaning of, of what's happening in the body. And when we only have a few thoughts to choose from, those are the, the things we use. And those are often those eating disorder voices, right? But if we start to understand how the body speaks through sensation, through five sense perception, and through movement, these are the native languages of the body. Then we can start to decode eating disorder behaviors and understand where in the attachment defense and sensory processing system is there opportunity for greater embodiment. And so that's what our third principle is, is that eating disorder behaviors are not a result of what we are thinking about the body, but it is what the body is saying about our experiences in the world and survival, thriving, and making sense of things. And so once you, you kind of, if you can get on board with that, <laughs> then we come to our fourth principle, which is that the body isn't an obstacle. It's not the enemy here. It is a resource in the recovery process. And so we start with what is your relationship with your body? It's not like in traditionally sort of your body image is put at, you know, well, that's the last thing that you deal with, right? You know, that'll come eventually. As soon as you, if you can wait, restore, then, then deal with your relationship with your body. And we're saying, no, we put that at the very beginning. And as you start to understand how the body speaks, you start to appreciate its wisdom. You start to collaborate with it. And you start to realize that there are ways to resource the body so it can be a resource in the recovery process. And sometimes what that means is that we have to nourish the body in different ways before it has the capacity to take in nourishment from food because eating is a very complicated process. You have to do a lot of work to extract energy from food and incorporate it into your system in a way that nourishes the, the, the body. And sometimes we have to be able to nourish the body through other forms of energy, whether that is sound, smell, movement, touch, love, all of these are ways that we nourish 
this body that then has the capacity to have a relationship with food in a different way. So those are our four principles. And that is what we try to offer people. And knowing that it's a multidisciplinary team, right? So everybody's going to be working with this in a different way. And there are new cognitions that are available when you look at it this way. So it's not that we say top-down processes aren't important. They are. But what we want to do is offer people cognition that is truly congruent with their sensory motor experiences, that's more accurate. And when that happens, what you hear is people go, oh, that makes sense, right? And they, there's this like, there's a reduction in shame and, and there's this open, the door opens, right? For a different relationship with their bodies. So it's like, how do we add this? Because everybody's going to work with it different. The yoga teacher is going to be different than the dietitian. But when we start to understand these principles and embodiment, there's a common language and it's, and everyone's radiating out, radiating out from a central hub as opposed to working in parallel processes. Okay. It, it was it was wonderful and it, there's so much that resonates with me. I mean, I'm very not I wouldn't say new, but uh, I'm still an infant in the understanding of embodiment and um this kind of somatic experiencing as a modality as a bottom-up processing um modality for eating disorder recovery. But the the first time I ever heard of it was about two years ago and it made sense and it just it like it was like a penny drop because there were things that w people were putting language to that i had felt and thought in the past but i couldn't understand or explain you know so sometimes i'd be helping a client and and suddenly I would get this feeling like this client doesn't need to talk right now. This client needs to sit on the floor and like rub the floor with their hands or what, you know, like, and I would Absolutely. get these. <laughs> and, and I didn't understand that, that that was what I was doing. And this idea of, you know, in order to break free from the bondage of the body, you, you have to drop into it, not run away from it, which is a lot of the time what we, we tend to try and do when we're fearful in our own eating disorder, um, eating disorders. I think what you guys do is amazing and I'm definitely at somewhere down the line doing your course hundred <laughs> percent. We would love to have, um, we would love to have you. Yeah. It's, it's, it makes so much sense to me and taking that cognitive element as well as the more intuitive, interoceptive awareness and kind of marrying them and making it the, the recipe that gets, the the person into a place of cultivating lasting recovery you know and and Annie Annie you um you're now working with the Embodied Recovery Institute I'd love to know what your role is what you're doing and, and how you got to this position sure yes um and it's it's ever evolving so you know check back in six months and you know we'll probably have different uh, kind of different answers. But um, yeah, so I'll just share a little bit of my story. And I <laughs> come at this from probably the opposite end of the spectrum from Rachel, which I think is actually such a beautiful then way that we kind of work together. I, my undergraduate degree was in brain and cognitive sciences. So even from the beginning of my sort of journey into what I wanted to do with my life as, as a career, I was drawn to that intersection of you know, biology and behavior, psychology and cognition. 
it was very interesting to learn everything I learned in my undergraduate degree. And then I went on to do the next logical thing, which was to work in research labs, which is one of the most unrelational jobs you can possibly be in. (laughs) And so it was not a fit for me. It took me a few years to figure out, but, and I didn't have any language or, or, or context for any of this, but I knew I was interested in this intersection, but had not sort of pursued the path that was going to nourish me in my career. I went back to school to become a dietitian. By circumstance, there were a lot of factors that went into why that was something that was just accessible for me to do at the time. But I also did have a sense that I was going into another field where there was a intersection of biology physiology, and also emotion, psychology, cognition, because food is all of, you know, all of those things. And so, um, you know, had a very traditional education and all of the pitfalls that come with that, as well as some really amazing, um, helpful pieces too. And I had not, I didn't have an understanding at that time that I was going to go into treating eating disorders, but I think it was an an inevitable path for me. I remember I was working early in my career at what basically was a weight loss, you know, wellness sort of company. That was even before I had sort of gotten into into health at every size. And of course, I'm a fully haze body liberation uh, minded provider now. So it was very early in my career. And I had worked with this client. She's one of my first clients. And we had, you know, set a goal for her to walk 30 minutes, three times a week. <laughs> and she came back to the next appointment. And I said, how how to go with your goals? And she burst into tears and sat there and sobbed. And I'm, I, I was sitting there looking at her like, hmm, I think I'm missing something. <laughs> there's something happening here and I need a little bit more education. And so that was uh, the beginning of my path down, you know, how food is so connected to all of, all of these bigger pieces. And eventually that road led to eating disorders um, and then eventually led to embodied recovery. And I'll tell you, Rachel speaks about her native language you know, being movement, being these more somatic um, kind of experiences. I am the opposite. I am a heady, intellectual, cognitive being. And sometimes I operate like I don't even have a body. That is improving with time as I deepen into this work. But when I went to our fir- my first embodied recovery training in 2018, I literally had no framework or context for any of that information to drop into. And I literally had no idea what had happened that weekend. But, but I knew that I was, there was really something important there. And I, when I share that story, I also want to sort of express it because I know there are a lot of people out there who are similar to me, especially diet. Well, Often, especially dietitians, that's that's kind of a blanket statement. That's not necessarily true, but certainly, um, at least our traditional training. And I think a personality type that's drawn to the field is often very kind of top down, kind of how we operate in the world. And I just want to share that there's really space in this work for people who operate that way too. And in fact, we're really needed. And we can talk more about that if if it's helpful. But 
you know, you don't have to be a dancer, a yoga teacher, uh, you know, somatic experiencing person to come into this training and, and have it be something that's really useful. For me, it has been transformative in my own life. And I am a much more embodied human now. Um, and, and I'm still on the path to that. And it's really had a huge impact for me personally and it has transformed my work with clients. I think one of the biggest things that I would say about it is, you know, when working from a very cognitive framework and having that sort of be the only tools I had in my toolbox, we would do really good work until we got stuck. And there was just a point at which, especially in the nutrition work, you know, we had done all the values work. We had talked about motivation. You know, the client wanted things to, to change. But there was something happening where that just wasn't, it wasn't happening. There were barriers to being able to engage in those behaviors. Now, sometimes, and I think we see this in higher levels of care, people could override what was happening in their body. They could perform the behaviors of recovery, but they were not embodying behaviors of recovery. There was not that bottom up support. And that's only sustainable for so long, right? But then the narrative becomes, oh, well, they're non-compliant or they're treatment resistant or, you know, they're a chronic case. There are these sort of pejorative ways of understanding when people don't get better um, or they relapse over and over. And so having this understanding that they're, you know, for folks for whom the, the top down approach was not enough, that there was a process happening in the body where there just wasn't enough safety, enough regulation, enough ingestive and digestive capacity to be able to function while also doing these eating behaviors that were being asked of them in recovery. And once the door to that opened for me, there was so much more more space to explore and, and that stuckness And it's not to say that all of a sudden it was like, okay, now everyone's better because just because we acknowledge the dysregulation in the body doesn't mean it just goes away. Um, But what Rachel was saying about that congruent narrative to go along with what's happening in the body and that being so shame reducing and so depathologizing really created so much space in in the recovery work and also in the relationship between myself and my client. And so that that sense of being really attuned to that sense that I could co-regulate with them because I really had a more accurate ability to see them it has deepened the work in ways I, I really don't even have words for <laughs> it's even hard to sort of remember what it was like not having this because it's it's become so much a part of my native language in in the work that I do So that's, yeah, that's a little bit of my story. One thing I want to say is being able to witness Annie's journey with this work has been one of the most rewarding parts of sharing this, because I think one of the pieces that's often missing in a lot of mental health is how much the provider's embodiment matters that when we start to really understand the power of co-regulation, we realize 
we matter and that some of this, this work is, you know, a lot of people will come to the trainings and like, well, what do I do? What do I do for my clients? How do I offer this to the clients? And, and I mean, invariably, like that's what happens. And I, I'm always saying, well, the first thing you do is understand this in yourself. And if that's not your journey, if you are like, I don't want to do that, that's okay. But recognize that someone on the team needs to be able to, right? Like not everybody has to be able to do all of this, but without it, we are asking, sometimes we're asking our clients to have greater embodiment than we have. And we're asking them to shift the process that they are using to navigate the world in a way they know we aren't willing to do. And that's just not fair. And so, you know, I'm just sitting back listening to Annie being like, wow, <laughs> you know, she, her ability to, to speak, she's not speaking about this work. She's speaking from it. And that's the key. And it's so, you know, I just want to sort of speak to my gratitude for the courage it takes and her willingness to go on that journey and to allow us to be part of it. So that's all. Any expression of gratitude is always beautiful to listen to. And I will express my gratitude as well, because it's when you were speaking, I kid you not, but I nearly shed a tear because of how much I could relate to what you were speaking into two things. The first one is being labeled a resistant to treatment, chronic relapser myself, you know, and, um, and that is, has always been one of the most challenging things that I've had to rewire in my belief system about my own journey is that um, I once went to a psychiatrist and he said, well, you've had bulimia for 15 years, so you're probably not going to recover, you know, <laughs> and uh, and I, I, I sank into that belief and I, uh, for a while and I had to, I was very determined to prove him wrong. <laughs> I also had that time where I was free from all behaviors for a very long time. But just because I was free from the behavior didn't mean that I was free, if that makes sense. I was coasting. And I was just doing stuff because that's what I was being told to do. And it, it, it wasn't dropping. I wasn't dropping into myself, you know. And these days, the ability to, to recognize things that are happening in my body and going, wow, my body's a resource. You know, I've even just did a, a speech uh, a couple of weeks ago on using your body as a resource, you know. And, and this ability to experience it myself and then sharing that light to other people and saying, it's possible, no matter how far down the line you've got, to integrate this into your practice and see the benefits. You know, and even there's some people out there that I know are also very, very head uh, driven. They are all about cognition, all about intellect. And when you say to them something like, you know, drop into your body, connect with the self, something like that, they're like, well what the heck does that mean? <laughs> you know, so to hear from someone who has had that experience, who's not necessarily naturally a body person to say, this has helped me, just speaks into how powerful it is. So one of the things that you mentioned, Rachel, you said, 
your professionals or the people taking your courses and stuff, they'll come to you and they'll say, well, what do I do with my clients? You know, and the whole time you've been speaking, speaking, I'm thinking the same thing. Well, what do I do? Like you speak about the, the, the process of embodiment, right? But maybe you could share some practical or um, guidelines or tools or something that a person could take away from, from this podcast and maybe start trying for themselves to practice this embodiment process so that they can see some kind of shift in in themselves. So I'm taking a pause just because I want to answer the question from a particular place. But in order for me to do that, I'm going to ask you, and again, we may edit this out, but I want to invite you to just check in and see that it's a beautiful question. And I'm wondering where inside of you does that a question arise? Where, like, just feel into that. Like, where is that question coming from? The first thing that I noticed intuitively, as you said, that was an immense tension in my hands. Ah, uh-huh. Great. Beautiful observation. So I don't know if that's enough for you to work for. <laughs> well, it, it kind of is because it really speaks to, it's like there's tension in your hands, almost like you're, you're like trying to hold, grab hold of something. Yes, like a tension in my hands that reflects all the way up my arms and almost makes me stiff. Yeah, 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 yeah. So often, I, I mean, I am a big, big believer in questions. Questions are so much more important than answers. So much more. Because they are what, they are what, kind of like paves or clears the path that we walk on, okay? So the first thing, you know, I, we might even say to somebody in terms of this process of embodiment is, well, it always has two pieces. It has a piece about what we are aware of and what we're aware, where we are aware from, right? So We've already started this process of sort of saying, okay, what are you aware of? The question or the thought? And then how, where in your body is that thought connected? What else is happening? And you may be able to know, oh, that question is 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 coming from a place, or you just may notice, oh, wait, my hands are clenched and I have this question. So we're already starting it, right? And so then we might just say, well, let's play with something, right? And that might be like another piece of what do we do? We observe with curiosity so we can then play. And so what we're going to do is we're going to hold that question, which was, you know, what can somebody do? And, and you feel how you, we hold it in tight hands, right? And those tight arms. Yeah. And then we might say, okay, what happens if I actually put something in my hand, right? That I actually just, just place something in your hand and let your hand hold it. And notice if the tension in your arm changes. Immediately. Immediately. Wonderful. Yeah. So just stay then with that shift in your, in your, the tension when there's something right there in your hand. 
Well, just out of curiosity, and I don't mean to interrupt you, but would it be significant that I intuitively placed the thing in my left hand rather than my right? Would that mean anything? Maybe. Or maybe <laughs> right? Right. And noticing that, that impulse to make meaning of something, like as opposed to hear meaning from something, like let it, let it bubble up, Right. But there's that, you know, that which kind of goes with like, it's another like, what can I grab hold of? Meaning when we try and like grab hold of it, right? Rather than experience it without judgment, without having to make meaning yet. But we notice like there's a relaxation in your hand that happened when there was something there. So we'll just slow it down and land in that sort of different, different organization in your arm. Just right. And can you, are you there? Does that, can you feel that still? Yes, right. definitely. Okay. So with that, we might just let those words of the question kind of like sprinkle down now, <laughs> come top down, but into this body that doesn't have that tension, that has something. And listen to the question again. And I think the words were, you know, what can somebody do, right? And just see if it feels like a different question, if it has a different quality to it. I think, wait, let me wait. <laughs> I'm rushing into this. <laughs> yeah, beautiful, beautiful, right. So even right there. That's a different process. So we're shifting. The, the, this was something that, that came up in the training just last weekend, where it was like we were talking about the process of change and just saying, well, what came out of my mouth was the process of change is changing the process. That's beautiful. So this process is one, is one of curiosity and time. And because... Time is a relationship. So we're slowing things down and we're shifting that sense of urgency. We're moving from a process of urgency to a process of discovery. And discovery is part of the process of recovery. Annie, jump in anytime you want. Yeah, well, I just really want to speak to my experience with this because as that person who came in and very much consistently had that question of, well, what do I do? Well, what do I do? How do I do this with clients? Um, where's the formula? Where's the, you know, a script. And I think about the parallel process that I have gone through or embodying this way of working to the process that my clients are going through embodying their own recovery. And, you know, I would <laughs> not get that sort of sad, what, what I thought would be a satisfying answer, right? Give me something to grasp onto. Um, but it wasn't one that was grounded. There wasn't, it would just be, you know, just grasping at this and grasping at that. And I had to learn in this process of, of this training to sit with the not knowing or sit with the, and I, I started to say to people, 
who would, who would come in and I was, you know, had been doing it for a while say, I promise you, even though your brain doesn't have that thing that it wants to grasp onto, you will, then you will be in session with clients and something will just be different. And you just have to, um, well, an invitation to trust that because that was certainly my experience. And so I kind of started letting go. I remember I was, I finished level two or tier two as, it, as we're now referring to it when we were sort of wrapping up and reflecting. And I was just like, you know what, as usual, there's sort of questions here and there's a lot here and I'm just going to sit with them and trust that it's all going to continue to integrate. And and that was genuine. Like there was a real peace about that because I actually like do know that to be true now. And that capacity to sit with not having that crystal clear answer, but knowing that this process is unfolding is very settling for me. <laughs> And I think that's also true, true for clients. And I can really appreciate that wanting something concrete, you know, and, and it's always, it's, you know, so, you know, if there is a sentence, it might be that, you know, people might be saying, it's like, what is something I can hold on to, right? It's like, what can I do? But the answer is not what you're holding on to, but how you're holding it. We don't change what you hold on to. We change how you hold on to it. And, and I will just add very practically for those people who are like, oh, oh, no, 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 I can't. There is concrete things that are offered. I mean, we do, you know, it's, it is part of the, the model to say, you know, in this situation, you might hand someone a weighted flat pad. Or you might invite them to, you know, do some, you know, bilateral squeezing of, I mean, there's, there is things, right? And that's not kind of what we lead with, I guess. is <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And, and perhaps the, the hesitation is that there are a lot of different things, but it is not a one size fits all, right? The, like, you know, there's a process of finding out, well, is a weighted lap pad going to be really helpful for you? Or is jumping on a trampoline for five minutes before you sit down to eat going to be helpful for you? Or is, you know, attending to the sensory environment in which you're eating going to be helpful? Or do we need to look at different ways of preparing your food? Because there are there are motor coordination issues that get in the way of you preparing food. And all you end up feeling is when you think food, you like, it goes so fast, right? It's like, I know I'm hungry, but in order to like, I, and I don't know anybody who can't relate to this, but the thought of having to make the food is like, Oh, I don't have the capacity to do that. So it's like, forget it. I'm not going to eat, you know, or, you know, it's like, or I'm going to have a bowl of cereal for dinner. And there's like all of these things. No, you're not allowed to have, you know, it's like, so we have to, the first thing is cultivate compassionate curiosity, build a way of observing with that, observing your anatomy, observing your thoughts, observing your emotions, observing when the eating disorder images or, or impulses or voices come in to this very complex process. So yeah, Annie, you look like you have something to add. 
There was something you said that I just want to really highlight and name because I think it really speaks to the paradigm shift. You know, we, there is an idea in, in kind of more in like traditional eating disorder paradigm, the treatment paradigms about what is an eating disorder behavior in terms of like, that's a bad thing, right? So that's a food ritual, right? I'm thinking about when I worked at higher levels of care and it was like, you cannot pick apart your sandwich. You cannot eat that with your hands. You cannot put that condiment on it. You know, if you need to have a boost, whether or not it's intentionally sort of um, given this way, every single client who I work with thinks boosts are punishment. Boosts might be the most accessible sensory experience for you to make nourishment more accessible. Boost is freaking great. I love it. Absolutely. Much better than starving or having to override a sensory system that is now going to not be able to process what it's taking in. So this shift from that's a behavior in terms of that must be eradicated or like that's that's you sort of behaving badly. It's like, oh, you need to cut up all your food in tiny pieces. What does that tell us about what you need to engage with nourishment? Cool. How do we support, how do we resource where there might be deficits so that the options get bigger, right? But also how do we start just be with, okay, so that's what's accessible to you right now. And like, that's really cool. And we can honor that and we can support that, right? Because it's like, we might be taking away one of the only ways that they know how to actually be engage with this and shaming them for it. Oh, I just, woof. I have feelings about that. <laughs> right. And, and, and the understanding of the sensory motor system is really important in that, right? That so many of these things, like, you know, cutting up food or picking apart things, when you have tactile sensitivities or oral defensiveness or, you know, proprioceptive def deficits, you know, the amount of dysregulation you have to override in order to take in a complex food source, you know, a sandwich with all of these different textures, you have to dissociate in order to do it. And yet, you know, so we're giving people these really, really confusing messages, which are listen to your body, but don't listen to your body if it's telling you this. Only listen here. And otherwise, rather than dissociate in this way, dissociate this way so that you can do this other behavior. And it just gets really confusing. And I think there's a place where we can start in a collaborative way just like Amy said, to expand capacity rather than navigate the dysregulation that comes when you are working against your capacity. Uh, yeah, I've felt an incredible shift in my understanding of everything that I've ever known about recovery. Um, and, you know, circling back to that question I had earlier about, you know, what does someone do? Da, da, da. And, and I feel like the process of this conversation has answered that for me or, or not answered it for me. And, and that's the beautiful part. And, and I feel like I can resonate with that. Um, you know, I've often said to, to, to people that our attachment to the tangible, to something solid, to something that we can feel is so, um, so intense that we don't often feel comfortable thinking about stuff that isn't tangible, that we can't hold on to and have certainty around. So this idea of 
getting comfortable or getting into relationship with uncertainty, with space, with expansion, with all of those kinds of things is really a beautiful part of this process. So um, I'm just really, really resonating with a lot of what you guys have said. I know we're nearly out of time and I do want to honor your time. So I'm going to ask one or two more questions. Uh, Maybe you can choose which of them you want to answer. We can talk about challenges that you see in your field things that you've enjoyed in your process professionally or personally or we can talk about um, what kind of message you might like to share with people listening to this um, so anything else that you'd like to share Annie do you want to speak to some of the the challenges of of weaving this into into the into into the profession in sure the, the stuff that you've spoken to is really incredible but I think it, it's an interesting process and in how we would weave this into the professional uh, sector or the professional field. So maybe you can speak into some of the challenges around this. Yeah, I think, and I'm, you know, I'm speaking as a dietitian. So also there's that perspective. I was trained in the, in the medical model and, you know, to, to view eating disorders as a problem to be solved. And that's very different from viewing them as an attempt at communication, an attempt at connection, even, right? Seeking support from others, a information about what somebody is experiencing and a way in to supporting them. It's just such a different way of being with someone when, when I'm, and so there's a couple of things. One is one of the first things, like I, I, I interviewed somebody to, to join. I, I have a group practice and I interviewed somebody the other day and I invited her to listen. Cause when I'm doing interviews these days, I'm like, either you're on the embodied recovery train or you're not like, this is what we do here. <laughs> it's cool if you don't want to be part of it, but um, this is what we do here. And I invited her to listen to some podcasts that Rachel and, and Paula had been on to get a sense of of what it was. And she immediately wrote, wrote back, she's like, this sounds awesome. And she said, but like, how does this fit with our scope of practice? And uh, it's very difficult when, when what was given to us as dietitians doesn't actually allow us to help people. It just doesn't. And also we were, we were in, in the training last weekend and a therapist brought forward the question. She said, well, in my training, I was taught she said, I'm very confused because I was taught two things. One is that the relationship is the most important thing. And the other is that I shouldn't bring myself into the room. <laughs> <laughs> and so how do we really expanding and giving ourselves permission? Like, I think there's a lot of fear from dietitians um, to really step into, you know, when we think about what food and the process of eating is, it is physical right? And, and we do, you know, sort of feel confident working in that realm if we're talking about biological processes from a more medical stance. It is relational. It is connected to trauma, whether that is attachment, defense, or even, you know, the trauma of having a sensory processing system that can't navigate a, a really intense world, you know, but if, if we as dietitians sort of, you know, step into some of that, it's like, well, stay in your lane. It's like, well, who, who made the road, right? Who, who drew the lines on the road? Why is it that we are not allowed to speak to clients about this? This is intimately 
connected to how somebody is able to be an intuitive eater. There's this whole intuitive eating model that basically, if we don't bring these things in, we can't really even be begin to support clients in, right? So there's this fracture in understanding. And of course, why that has come to be is I don't fully understand, or it's, you know, really complicated and probably very political. And and it can be tough to navigate if I'm sharing a client with a therapist who does not appreciate what I'm bringing forward. But I am learning to stand a little more confidently on my two feet and and really embody, this is what I know. This is what I have to bring. And it it is part of my job to bring this into the room with clients because it is directly connected to their capacity to ingest, digest, assimilate nutrients, eliminate waste. Mm. And if we don't bring it, we're not doing our jobs. So yeah, I think that's what I'd have to say about that. (laughs) It's really, really beautiful. If I could just add two quick things. I think that the way in which we start to overcome some of those challenges is to really understand that the shift is moving from a an organization around fear, right? The eating disorders develop in a, in a situation where there's not enough capacity or availability to connect with safety. So the body is it has more fear running through than love, right? If we think of those two things as, as sort of the balancing forces, right? We need both of them to survive, but we are mammals. And the first thing we do as we come into existence is to attach and connect. That's the first thing we do. That is our first instinct towards life. There is such an emphasis on defense, right? And protection is being called safety, and it's not. Protection is protection, safety is safety. Safety is because there's a presence of something that I can connect with. Protected is that there's a danger I can disconnect from. So we have to be willing to make that shift that we're moving from an allopathic um, approach where what do we get rid of? What do we kill? (laughs) What do we stop to an osteopathic, which is what do we start? And in that, we start to understand that recovery is an additive process. It's what do we add, not what do we get rid of. Now I'm listening to my body because I'm getting tingles and it means it's good. So (laughs) this wonderful, wonderful, wonderful words. Thank you so, so much. I would love to know, I mean, it's been wonderful having you guys on the show and I could literally speak to you both for hours. Um, But we have come to the end of this episode and I would love for you to share with us how we can find you or even courses you have coming up and things like that. Absolutely. So our website is www.embodiedrecovery.org. As far as social media goes, I know we have a Facebook page, the Embodied Recovery Institute, I think it is. I am not a social media person, so that's like not my great thing. But there's a lot on the website. Um, There's a way to sign up for, you know, to get updates and newsletters. We have right now a three-tiered training program. The first is primarily an introduction to this model. And we have an online version and we have an in-person version of that. There's some courses that we're building 
All of that's on the website. The tier two basically goes into different concepts that we, we offer in the introduction, but they're more in depth. So we have one that's specifically about attachment, the somatic um, scaffold of attachment, one about sensory processing and neurodivergence, autism spectrum disorder. And then, then it goes from there. And then there was a tier three, which is currently in development, which is really about proficiency. Um, clinical proficiency. And we have two different group protocols that will be part of the tier three system. Fantastic. Would you like to say, um, share your stuff as well, Annie? Yeah. I, in addition to embodied recovery, which I'm becoming more and more involved in um, on the sort of teaching and faculty end, I also have a group practice. I'm in Charlotte, North Carolina, although we do offer virtual services depending on state, like, you know, what state you're in and, and the licensing there. It's called Second Breakfast Nutrition. Um, so any Tolkien fans who think they get that reference, you are correct. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not I'm not big on social media either. Uh, I I am more and more interested and excited about offering consultation to those who have either been through tier one or just are interested in in this way of working. Uh, so happy to support folks um, who are interested in that. But yeah, I'm, I'm kind of on my journey. Thank you so much. It's been lovely to have you guys on the show. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening to today's podcast. If you have liked it, share it with people who you think might benefit from listening to it as well. Don't forget to go to my Instagram page called at Curious About Recovery to find out about upcoming episodes or to browse the episodes of the past. You can also follow my page called at Kirsten Honeyball where you can get inspiration for your eating disorder recovery.